I want to invite you, if you have a Bible with you, to open to Titus chapter 3. Uh, this morning we're going to be taking a look at a few verses in this book from Paul. Comedian Fred Klett grew up as one of ten kids, and as you can imagine, that provided a fair bit of material for his comedy routine. He, uh, he shares lots of stories, but his parents say that the, the one story that best epitomizes what it was like raising ten kids was, uh, was one concerning events that happened shortly after the, their family had watched the movie Mary Poppins. Uh, he says that one particular day, his father was sit- sitting at the kitchen table looking out the window when suddenly the oldest boy, Jeff, holding onto an umbrella, went past the window, hitting the ground hard. His father said that if it had ended there, he would have understood, but after that, uh, Fred went past the window, and then Terrell went past the window, and finally Kyle went past the window, and Kyle didn't even have an umbrella. Fred said that his dad came outside, looked at the boys all laying in a heap on the ground, and and asked him, now, when you saw your brother Jeff jump and the umbrella not work, why did you jump? To which Fred said, well, I didn't think he'd done it right. (laughs) Then their dad got sucked into kid logic. And he yelled at Kyle, and you did not even have an umbrella! To which Kyle snapped back, a lot of good it did them! (laughs) Do you remember that sense of wonder as a child when, when umbrellas could make you fly? In his book, Dangerous Wonder, Mike Iaconelli laments the fact that many of us today have lost our sense of wonder. As followers of Christ, we've grown bored, we've grown complacent, we've gotten stuck in the routine of life. We've lost our aliveness, we've lost our vibrancy, we've forgotten to listen for the voice of Jesus and to follow him into the adventure that he calls us into. He calls us, Iaconelli in his book says, he calls us into dangerous wonder, and he says this, when we find the place of dangerous wonder, our souls come to life, and we sense that we are on the brink of a great and mysterious way of life. Easter is an event that jumpstarts our sense of wonder. Jesus, who was crucified by Rome, Jesus, who was dead and buried, is suddenly alive again, and And that changes everything. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, salvation has dawned. Through faith in him, we too can be made alive. We too can receive life and embark on the adventure of following Jesus. That is what I want to talk about this morning. The wonder of Easter. The wonder of an empty tomb. The wonder of Jesus made alive again and all that that means for us. To that end, we're going to dig into a few verses here at the end of the book of Titus. Before I read those to you, though, let me say a few things by way of background information. The Apostle Paul is writing to Titus, one of his young colleagues, uh, someone he refers to as his son in the faith, uh, to Titus and to the church through Titus. Now, we don't know a lot about Titus. Curiously, Luke doesn't mention Titus in the book of Acts, which is where we learn a lot about Paul and his ministry. Uh, most likely, Titus came to faith 
through the ministry of Paul. Uh, we know that Titus was a Gentile, a non-Jewish believer, and we know that he became a trusted uh, colleague in ministry, a, a trusted companion and partner in ministry. According to the book of Titus, we know that Titus has been left by Paul on the island of Crete after Paul and Titus evangelized the island and saw people come to faith in Jesus. He is left there by Paul to set in order uh, the churches that had been established. That would have been house churches across the island, not, not a gathering like this, but probably multiple smaller gatherings across the island of Crete. We know that at the time of writing this letter, Paul... Uh, Paul was soon going to send someone, either uh, Tychicus or Artemis, to replace Titus as pastor to these churches, and Titus was going to rejoin the Apostle Paul. There are two major themes in this book. I just want to note them. Uh, one particularly comes into play in the text we're going to look at. Uh, the one theme is, is that of a warning of false teachers and the danger that the church could face if these false teachers proclaim uh, incorrect doctrine. Paul knows, and he proclaims to Titus, the importance of proclaiming the true gospel. That is, uh, the, the gospel as Paul has taught it, as they proclaimed in drawing people to faith. So this warning about false teaching. Secondly, Paul is concerned uh, about the good works or good Christian behavior of the believer's in Crete, not for the sake of, not in order that they be saved. That goes back to right doctrine. We are saved apart from what we do. He is concerned about how they live in order that they might make Christ attractive to the non-believers. So those are the two themes, this warning about false teaching and this uh, encouragement to live godly lives. Now, I want you to remember that as we uh, move into the text. I'm going to read verses 3 to 7, Titus 3 3 to 7. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. I want to do four things with you in the next few minutes. First, I want to explore Paul's description of his readers, who they used to be before they put their trust in Jesus. Second, I want to unpack all that Paul says about what God has done. Third, I want to highlight the glorious result of what God has done. And then fourth, reflect with you on some important implications for our lives, regardless of who we are, where we're at spiritually this morning. Uh, first, Paul's description of his readers. If any of us hope to understand the magnitude and the glory of this day, of Easter, and what it is the church celebrates and why it is the church celebrates, we must first be sobered by what Paul says in verse 3. Paul here is describing what was true in the past of everyone who has put their faith in Jesus. He's describing what was true in the past of his original readers, both Titus but also the church. He's writing to Titus but through Titus to the church. And Paul is declaring what was true of all of them. Uh, but not only that, but also what is true of, of others who have not come to faith. 
Listen to what he says in verse 3 again as I read that. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. This is what Paul says was true of all those he's writing to, of all of us who are in Christ before we came to Christ. And clearly, this is what he is saying is true of all those who do not yet know Christ. Now, that's not a flattering description. Uh, not likely to win, Paul, any popularity contests on the island of Crete or beyond should this get into the local papers. Uh, hey, remember that guy who was here not long ago? Yeah, you know what he said about us? Paul is describing what was true of every Christian and what is true of everyone who is not in Christ. And what we need to recognize here is that Paul is describing the universal human condition. This will not be a surprise to any of you if you have spent any significant time reading the scriptures. The Bible is clear that apart from faith in Christ, we are all in rebellion against God. We are depraved. Now, to speak of human depravity does not mean that we are all as bad as we could be. It is to say that every aspect of who we are as human beings, apart from Christ, is tainted by sin. That we live in rebellion against God. We stand in opposition to God. Romans 5.10, we are described as God's enemies. Ephesians 2.3, we read, we were by nature deserving wrath. That is, we stand under God's judgment, guilty of sin. Colossians 1.21, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Scripture over and over and over again describes this as our human condition. Apart from Christ, we are God's enemies. We are in rebellion against God. We are evil sinners. No matter how outwardly respectable we may appear, no matter how moral we think we are, even how religious we are, if we have not put our faith in Christ, this is true of everyone. And for those who have put their faith in Christ, this was true of you before you came to Christ. Now let's take a few moments to walk through some of the specifics that Paul expresses here. He says that we too were foolish. Now this is not some cheap shot. This is not Paul saying that every non-believer is intellectually deficient. His point is that no matter how much they may know about all manner of things, if they do not know God, they are foolish in the one thing that matters most. Biblically, wisdom is described as living uh, in light of the reality of who God is and who we are and what that means. Apart from Christ, we are foolish. We do not know God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, we read in the Proverbs. Uh, we were not only foolish, disobedient. That is not submitted to God, not submitted to God's ways. We do our own thing. We reject God. We reject his authority. We reject any notion that we are accountable to him. And we live with ourselves on the throne as our own authority. Jeremiah the prophet says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Not only that, but we are in rebellion, we are disobedient to God, but that all comes from our own heart. That is, none of us can say, well, 
I, I, I did this wrong thing because of my mate, or I did this wrong thing because of my parents, or because of my kids, they drove me to it, or, or because of the culture, or because of the internet. No, Jesus says really clearly, Mark's gospel, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come from. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Apart from Christ, this is true of all of us. We cannot blame, we are not victims who can blame others, other people or other situations for our sin. No, our sin, our evil behavior comes out of our own heart is what we hear from Jesus. We were foolish, we were disobedient, we were deceived. Thirdly, Paul ultimately understands that all who resist God are in fact duped by Satan. God's arch enemy who wants to resist God, who wants to fight against God, who wants to mess with God's plans, is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. That is, he wants to lead humanity astray. He wants to keep humanity in the darkness. He wants to keep us from understanding God's love and God's grace and God's work of salvation. And so all who are apart from Christ remain deceived, duped by Satan. Paul goes on and speaks of enslavement to all kinds of passions and pleasures. That is, apart from Christ, obedience is not even possible. Uh, we, we read those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. We are enslaved. We are slaves to sin. Again, that doesn't mean we do everything bad that we could, but everything we do is tainted by sin. We cannot please God in the flesh. That is, we cannot please God apart from Christ. And he speaks of malice and envy being hated and hating. And he speaks of our relationships horizontally. Apart from Christ, we live self-centered lives uh, characterized by malevolence, hostility towards others, envy. We want what others have. And so there is absolute relational disharmony, hating and being hated. Now, I have no doubt that many in our culture, perhaps many of you as you hear this, find this terribly offensive. You take exception to this. You'd agree that this would be true of some, those on the other end of the political spectrum from you. There's lots of that going on in our culture, right? There are some evil people, it's, it's them. But, but to embrace this as true about all of us, to embrace this as the truth of, of what it means to be human apart from Christ, it, it, it's so offensive. I mean, maybe we have some minor transgressions, but mostly we're good and decent. Surely Paul is overstating the case, like seriously overstating it. But he's not. Not according to God. Not according to God's word. Scriptures consistently tell us that apart from Christ, we are God's enemies. Apart from Christ, all of these things are true. We are foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved. See, part of what lies behind this way of thinking that we're not really this bad is a fundamental error in, in our thinking about sin. See, too often we think of sin merely as a violation of some rule. That God has, has set up some arbitrary rules and, 
and we can, we can transgress one of those, and it's really not such a big deal. We, we fail to see the gravity of what sin actually is, of, of what we're actually doing when we violate God's law, God's way. Remember the tree in the Garden of Eden in Genesis? We read that God put a tree there and told Adam and Eve that they were not to eat of it. God didn't put that there as some test for Adam and Eve, you know, dangle this thing in front of them to tempt them. No, that tree represents his authority. It is a symbol that their authority as human beings is not ultimate. God gave them dominion. God gave them responsibility. God gave them a tremendous amount of authority, but their authority was derivative. It came from his. And so that tree stood as a symbol that their authority was not ultimate. And when they violated God's command... They didn't just break a rule, they broke a relationship. They committed treason against the king of kings. And that's what sin is. It's not just a a breaking of some arbitrary rule. It is treason. It is rebellion. It is breaking a relationship. It's saying to God, I don't need you. I don't want you. I will be my own authority. I will do it my way. Paul's argument this point in this letter is this. He, he's saying, remember. Remember that, that this was once true of you. He's writing to Titus. He's writing to the church. He's saying, remember, this was true of you. Remember that this was true of all of us. But, and here Paul shifts the focus. And that but, the beginning of the next verse is so important. What was once true, what was once Who you were, your identity apart from Christ is no longer true. It's what was true, but now we have received through Christ, through the events we celebrate this weekend, we have a new identity. The events of Easter change everything. Let's turn our attention from what Paul said about who we were to Paul's explanation of what God has done. There is so much packed into the rest of this passage Uh, what God is like and what God has done, uh, what it is that we celebrate today on Easter Sunday, the glorious truths of salvation in Christ. Paul writes in these few verses twice, he says, he saved us, that is, God saved us. Salvation is the work of God. And God saves us. Why? He says so clear, not because of righteous things we had done. Salvation is not rooted in our performance for God. It is not based on righteous things we had done, our goodness, our achievements, our merits, our own righteousness. No, salvation is God's work because of his mercy, Paul writes. God saved us because of his mercy. When the kindness and love of God appeared, he saved us because of his mercy. Kindness is an attribute of God. Kindness means providing what is beneficial to the other. Doing what is beneficial for the other, which is precisely what Christ did. Christ came, and Christ went to the cross, and he laid down his life for us. He bore the penalty that needed to be paid. He bore the penalty that you and I deserve. He suffered, not only physically, but he suffered betrayal, abandonment. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced forsakenness for us, for our benefit, out of kindness for us. On the cross, Jesus 
spoke those incredible words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Love is also an attribute of God. In fact, John says God is love. John 3.16, a verse that probably everyone is familiar with, for God so loved the world. World there doesn't mean the planet. It's not talking about geography. World means humanity in rebellion against God. God so loved humanity even as we thumbed our noses at him. God loves us even in our rebellion. While we were his enemies, Jesus went to the cross and suffered for us to pay the price for us, price that we could never pay in order that through faith in him we might be redeemed. When the kindness and the love of God appeared, God saved us by his mercy. Ephesians 2.4 speaks of God being rich in mercy. Salvation is a gift. Salvation is the work of God. It is not something we deserve. It is not something we contribute to. We simply surrender in faith and say, Jesus, you are my only hope. We lean on him. Salvation is his doing. Paul says more here. He tells us not only that God saved us by his mercy, because of his kindness and his love, but he tells us a little bit about how he affected that salvation through the agency of the Holy Spirit. He speaks of the washing of rebirth by the Spirit. That is, we are cleansed. The work of Christ is applied to our lives by the Holy Spirit. We are born again, born from above. We are made alive by God. Our text also speaks of being renewed by the Spirit. God renews us. He makes us into new creations, new women, new men, God's new humanity. We receive newness of life through Christ by the Holy Spirit who is poured out generously into our lives, giving us spiritual life, empowering us to live the life of, of following Christ and guaranteeing our future, our eternal life. Ephesians 3.20, we read this. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Listen to that. To him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. What can you imagine God doing? Paul says, to him who is able to do immeasurably more. According to his power that is at work in us. What power? His power. But, but what is that power? Earlier in Ephesians we read this. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. God's power by which Christ came out of the grave is the same power at work in us to do immeasurably more than we can imagine. That is the life that we have received. That is the life of God in us by his spirit. Christ our Savior justifies us by his grace and mercy. We are through faith in him declared holy, declared obedient, declared righteous. That is the good news. Not that we clean ourselves up. Not that we somehow manage to pull up our spiritual socks. Not that we do a thing. God saves us. That is the glorious good news. That is what we celebrate today and every day. That is what Christ has done. That when we put our faith in Jesus, the one who was crucified in our place, and the one who came out of the grave that first Easter morning, 
who clothes us with his perfection, who has washed us of our sin, purifying us. This great exchange where Christ bore our guilt, our sin, our wickedness, and we bear his perfection. And the Father looks at us and he sees only the perfection of Jesus' Son. That's what Easter is about. That's what God has done. God has, through Christ, saved. So third, the result of what God has done. There are so many ways in which scriptures speak of those who put their faith in Christ. They're called saints, adopted, children of God, alive, citizens of the kingdom, in the light, new creations. But there is another word used here. In verse 7, a rich term, Paul speaks of us through the work of God, through the work of Christ, through his saving work, that we became heirs. Think about that. What does it mean to be an heir? An inheritor. One who gets what another person has earned. One who gets what belongs to someone else. That's true of us now. In Christ, we are clothed with his perfection. We receive his righteousness. We, we inherit that. But there is another sense of what is being said here. We are also heirs in the sense that, that we receive what is his. That is, we receive eternal life. We receive resurrection life. Uh, through faith in Christ, we are united with Christ so that the death of Christ is our death and the resurrection of Christ is our resurrection, that we receive that life now. And the Spirit outpoured into us is a guarantee of our eternal life with God in his presence. We are heirs of eternal life. Is what Paul says here. That that one day we will enter into that life. That that is guaranteed to us in Christ by his spirit. And so the future is sure. The future is certain. Our lives in the present are, are radically transformed by that. Infused with a radical courage and boldness. Because our final enemy, death, is no longer a threat. We need not fear. Death now simply leads into our experience of eternal life in God's glorious presence. This is why Paul can write this in Philippians. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, if I live, it will will mean fruitful ministry for Christ. If I die, I get to be with Christ. And he says, I feel torn. I want to die and go be with Christ. But, But all of life is Christ. We are heirs of eternal life. What happens on Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Christ... Is, is, is bigger than that, as glorious as that is. The resurrection of Christ is our resurrection. It is the first fruits guaranteeing what lies ahead for us. And that changes everything. I want to quickly, with you, fourthly, think through a few implications for our lives this morning. First, for those of you who are already in Christ, those who have trusted Jesus, three things. First, we should not be surprised to see the world around us ravaged by sin and by wickedness. Apart from Christ, there is no solution. Apart from Christ, there is no hope. Hear this. There is no political leader. There is no political party. 
There is no ideology. There is no philosophy. There is no set of laws or rules. There is no amount of self-discipline that will ever fix what is broken. Do we hear that? Do we believe that? The problem that we have, apart from Christ, can only be solved by coming to Christ. Looking to other things, looking to leaders, looking to political parties, looking to any other ideology for a solution, it's like arranging deck chairs on the Titanic. The ship is going down. Paul has been so clear. This is who you were. This is what it means to live apart from Christ. Spiraling ever into deeper darkness. Foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved. The world needs Jesus. We all need Jesus. And apart from Jesus... There is no hope. There is no solution. And so we, of all people, should not be surprised when we look around us at a world that is rejecting Christ and we see things spiraling ever deeper into darkness and chaos. We should not be surprised. Second, as those who have been saved, we ought to be incredibly humble. We are not saved because of our righteousness. We have not contributed to our salvation. In fact, before Christ, we were in the exact same spot as everyone around us apart from Christ. If it were not for the grace of God, the mercy of God in our lives, we would be exactly like those around us now. Jesus alone is our hope. And so as Christians, as those who put our faith in Jesus, we, we are simply beggars telling other beggars where to find bread, where to find the life-quenching satisfaction from Jesus. Third, we can throw ourselves into the mission of God with great boldness and courage and passion. Remember, one of the major themes of this letter was godly living. Living in such a way, is Paul's point, not that we be saved by our behavior. He's been so clear that, that, that that's, not, that's not even on the table. A apart from Christ, there is no salvation. We are saved by God through Christ because of his mercy, out of his love and his kindness, not through anything righteous that we've done. So let's, let's hold on to that. That is the true gospel. So on the one hand, he's saying, Titus, this is the true gospel. Proclaim the true gospel. He warns them against false teachers who will proclaim any other kind of false gospel. This is the gospel. Salvation comes from God through Christ because of his mercy, apart from righteousness that we do. And then he says, now live godly, holy lives. Not in order to be saved, but in order that others would be attracted to Christ. That they would see your life and be drawn to Christ. That is our mission. That we would live such good lives in light of Christ, in light of Easter. In light of the fact that Christ has come out of the grave. That we would live with such boldness and winsomeness and humility. Pointing others to Jesus because he is our only hope and he is their only hope. And therefore, we can risk everything. 
living for Jesus. We can pour out everything for the sake of seeing lost women and lost men come to Jesus. Because for us in Christ, Easter has changed everything. The Christian life, we need to hear this. This is not simply about adding something to our life. Well, we want a little bit of Jesus, so later on we go to heaven. No, Jesus changes everything. Easter changes everything. We have been made new by Christ, saved by Christ for the mission of Christ, to live for Christ in such a way that others are attracted to Christ. John MacArthur writes, we must look at the unsaved as our Lord looked at them during his incarnation and still looks at them now with grief and tears over their lostness and a compassionate desire to see them repent, believe in Jesus, and be saved. Church, Easter changes everything. We need to recapture the sense of wonder of what God has done. We need to stand before the empty tomb and realize what God has done, that he has, out of his kindness, out of his love, and because of his mercy, he has saved us, and he has saved us for a purpose, for his glory, to magnify his glory in all the earth, that others would see and, and do as we've done, come to Jesus and receive mercy. If you were with us this morning and you are not a believer, you've not put your faith in Jesus, I want to speak to you for a moment. I, I know that, that what Paul says here, the message of Scripture, is offensive because it, it says to us that, that we can't do it, that we are not sufficient, that we cannot fix what's broken about us. And, and I, I make no apologies for that. That's true. Apart from Christ, you are foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved. That is true of all of us. It was true of me before I came to Christ. My only hope is Christ. And so if that's you this morning, I implore you to come to Christ, to, to acknowledge your need to Christ in repentance and belief. Say, Jesus, you are my only hope. Come to Jesus, who is kind, who loves you, who desires to pour his mercy into your life. He is your only hope. He is our only hope. And so that is something that you can do today. Surrender to Jesus. Admit that you can't fix what's broken. And that you need what only he can do. I pray that you would see today the empty tomb and recognize God's great love for you in Christ. That he bore the penalty that you deserve so that through faith in him you might receive new life. Do you remember Fred Klett and his brothers and their umbrellas and their sense of wonder? They believed that assuming you did it right, an umbrella would make you fly. And so they jumped. Today we celebrate an empty tomb. The fact that Jesus is alive, and, and that does change everything. We can jump with no fear that somehow the umbrella won't work. No, Jesus is sure. We are secure in him, saved by him, saved by what he has done, and called into this glorious work of magnifying his glory in all the earth, living as people shaped 
by Easter as Easter people so that others might see, that others might see the glory and the beauty and the goodness and the love and the kindness of Jesus and turn to him in faith. So my challenge to you today is this. What will it look like for you and for me to live with that sense of wonder That sense of wonder at the glory of God's work of salvation. That sense of wonder that this morning we celebrate that the tomb is empty, that Jesus is alive, and because he lives, we will live, and we can pour out ourselves, our lives, even to death, to magnify his beauty, to magnify his glory, and his glorious work of salvation. May Christ, by his Spirit, move in us and through us, and fill us with wonder that we would jump. Jump into his arms, jump into his mission, jump into wherever his spirit is leading us. That we would live boldly, radically for him. That we wouldn't just get stuck in routines and lose that sense of wonder, but that we would jump. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you for you are good. You have shown us your kindness and your love. You have poured out your mercy to save. You have poured out generously your spirit. Fill us with a sense of wonder at your glory, we pray. Fill us with a sense of wonder that would shape our lives. Fill us with a sense of wonder And may that radiate out of our lives, into the lives of those around us. We pray, Jesus, that you would draw many who remain lost to faith in you. That they, too, would be recipients of your saving work. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. We're going to celebrate communion in a moment. I'm going to invite Bill and Lois to come forward. They're going to serve it this morning. Just a word, if you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, just invite you to remain where you are and watch as the people of God do what Christ has called us to do. Jesus said the night he was betrayed that we are to do this in remembrance of him. He took bread and broke it and said, this is my body which is given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup and said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant of my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. So if you are at home, I trust that you have some bread and juice or wine ready. In a moment, Bill and Lois will come around. If you would like to participate, if you are a believer in Christ, just put your hand out and they will drop a little uh, container of the elements into your hand. It's a little cup of juice. And in the top, there is two layers of foil. Uh, Peel back the first one and you'll find a little wafer in there. Uh, We'll all partake together, so just take that uh, when they come around. Uh, For those who need gluten-free, there is a gluten-free cracker and a Ziploc you can grab. Uh, Let's pray and give thanks to Jesus for his body given for us, his blood shed for us. And as we participate in this meal of remembrance, let's also remember that this is a meal uh, that points us forward to that day when we will enjoy that wedding supper of the Lamb with him. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your gift of salvation. We thank you, Jesus, that you gave your life for us, that you gave your body for us, that you poured out your blood for us. 
Thank you for this celebration, this reminder. And thank you, Jesus, also that it is a foretaste of a glorious banquet that one day we will enjoy in your presence. As we partake, you bless us with a deep sense of your presence and your work in us. Amen.